have to say as I get started, I was standing in the back this morning greeting people and uh, Robert Ward shook my hand and he said, oh, I bet you're in trouble now, aren't you? After what I'd said in my sermon. And I have to say that he was not the only one who said two or three people said that after him. And what I want to say is that everything I said was true. You can ask Abby, she'll back me up on it. I wasn't lying. I might have been joking, but I was not lying. It was all rooted in truth. We're continuing the study we began last week this evening where we're looking at... Uh, lessons that are uh, taken from songs that we sing or are inspired by them or are related to some of them and looking at how our songs can help to teach us. And I, I have to say, this is a lesson tonight's in particular was one that I had intended to do uh, at some point in the coming weeks over this song in particular. Uh, it was not the one I intended to initiate this series with, but in light of recent events in this congregation, I felt like it would be a, a fitting one for us and one that uh, uh, would be timely and relevant. God created the world and it was good. It was very good, in fact. But sin marred his creation. And now we live in a fallen world, a flawed world. We still experience the good. There are seasons of joy and of happiness and of laughter. And we treasure all of those things. But there are also seasons of sorrow and sadness and tears. We hurt. We suffer. There's sin, there's death. If we had nothing to look forward to, nothing better than this, as Paul puts it, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 19, if in Christ we have hope only in this world, we're above all people most to be pitied. We may want to live here, and we may even enjoy life, and that's good. God wants us to enjoy this life, but no one wants to live here forever. Our hearts long for a better land, a land without sickness and death, a place with no suffering or disappointment, a place where we don't have to say goodbye to those people who we love so dearly. A land void of, of remorse and tears and pain. And the good news is there is just such a place. The Apostle John was given a, a glimpse of it and he tried to describe it for us in terms that we can somewhat understand, and I want to read to you some of that description now. Uh, Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. I'm skipping to verse 22 if you're reading along with me now. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, and also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will, will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. It's interesting to me that we really know so little about the life to come when you get right down to it. Scripture talks about it, John talks about it here, but we just get glimpses. And I suppose that's because full understanding, full comprehension has to wait until we're actually in the presence of God. We've probably been given as much as our finite minds can grasp to try to, to deal with, to try to wrap our minds around. And in that light, I think it's interesting to note, if you picked up on this in our reading here, some of the most significant things we're told about heaven are negative things. By negative things, I don't mean bad. I mean things that are not there. I think about it this way. Imagine that you were trying to describe what a, a lush, tropical paradise looked like to someone who lived in the Arctic. How would you do that? Someone who'd only ever seen 
ice and snow. Uh, in some of the Inuit languages, they have dozens of words for snow. Uh, falling on the ground and after it's fallen the snow that's good for packing and sledding and the snow that's in a drift we just call it all snow but that's what their experience is they differentiate it what would a, a palm tree mean to someone who'd only seen ice and snow what would the bright feathers of a tropical bird mean to someone who'd only ever seen a seagull or a penguin what would an elephant or a lion mean to anyone who'd only ever seen a, a seal. So in other words, if you were going to describe the tropics to this person, you'd have to start by telling them what's not there. There's no ice. There's no snow. There's no polar bears. And in a way, I think that analogy helps us to get, in some sense, the way that we're told about heaven. We get these glimpses of what lies beyond by being told what is not there that is so common to our experience. The things that we're accustomed to, the things that we're just used to here on this earth, they won't be there. There's no night there. There's no death. There are no tears. Sounds like a place I want to go. How about you, yeah? There are a lot of reasons that I want to go there. I want to go to heaven, first of all, because I don't want to go to hell. Now that's on one level a pretty superficial reason, a basic reason, and hopefully we progress beyond that. But I think it's important that we grasp and we appreciate the reality of hell. Hell's not something we talk about too often these days, even in the church. And you'll find some people, you've probably heard this, well, yeah, I just don't believe in hell. I don't believe that God could ever condemn anyone. Heaven, as has often been said, is a prepared place for prepared people. Same thing is true of hell. It's been prepared for the devil and his angels. And for all those who live in rebellion to God. And if I'm not prepared for heaven, then I'm prepared for hell. I've always liked the way that C.S. Lewis describes this in his book, The Great Divorce. Getting hell, whatever else it may be, it's eternal separation from God. It's getting what we choose. He describes it like this. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without self-choice, there could be no hell. If we could really understand that, and understand the gravity of eternity separated from God, and that that's what we're choosing, well, then I imagine that sin would lose a whole lot of its allure. But on a more optimistic note, I want to go to heaven because it's a place that's beautiful, 
and more grand than we can possibly imagine. Beautiful beyond comprehension. You remember Jesus' words in John chapter 14, some of the last words he delivers to his apostles on that night before he's betrayed, beginning in verse 1. He tells them, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms or many mansions. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The Lord has prepared a place for his people to be with him. And now listen to what John says about that place. Back to uh, Revelation 21. He says in verse 16, The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. 12,000 stadia, that's just about 1,400 miles. So you square that and we come to just about 2 million square miles. And to put that in perspective, that's roughly eight times the size of the state of Texas. We're talking about a massive area here. And the point, none of these descriptions in Revelation, we shouldn't take them literally. I don't want to imply that uh, heaven is literally eight times the size of the state of Texas, okay? But the point of this is John saw something greater and grander than anything he'd ever seen before. And this is the only way he could put it into terms that we could at least try to grasp, that it's, it's impossibly big for our minds to wrap around. I think about what the Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse number 9. Eye is not seen, nor is ear heard, nor can the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. Heaven is a place that is beautiful beyond anything that we can envision. And John tries to describe it in Revelation in terms of these jewels and gold, things that we think of as beautiful. Again, not to be taken literally, but just things that it just passes beyond all of our comprehension. There's no way for us to imagine something as beautiful as what John describes in Revelation 21 and 22. But what we do know about God, what we know from this world He created, God must love things that are beautiful because of the way He created this world. In fact, that's one of the ways that Scripture says we know that God exists, right? We look around and we see the creation, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies above proclaim His handiwork. How would you describe the creation to someone who's blind? That's what it's like for John to try to describe heaven to us. It's more beautiful than we can imagine. Paul says, ear hasn't heard anything like what God has prepared. And what we find in Revelation, the most beautiful music of earth can't compare to the music in heaven. We'll sing there a new song. It's beyond all our imagination, Paul says. And God's prepared that 
for those who love Him. Third and finally, I want to go to heaven because it's the place that God has prepared that provides comfort and rest to us. We don't really find comfort and rest in this world. And there are so many things that we don't understand. So many things that we can't figure out. I think that's one of the reasons that another hymn that we sing farther along appeals to us. And unfortunately, this verse is actually not in our songbooks. But you probably remember this one. When death has come and taken our loved ones, it leaves our home so lonely and drear. Then do we wonder why others prosper, living so wicked year after year. I know we've all felt that way at times, wondering why bad things happen to good people, wondering why grief and loss visit happy homes when it seems that there are others who are living lives that are totally in opposition to God that seem to be blessed. Life at its best is frail. Death is the one thing that's certain for all of us. But in heaven, John says in Revelation, there will be no pain, there will be no sorrow, no sad farewells. There will be no bitter tears because God has promised to wipe them away from each and every eye. Sterling was born on a farm in Coleman, Texas, January 26, 1905. He started to sing when he was only a boy, and when he was 16, he decided he wanted to study music in earnest. So he went off to the Central Normal Music School in Little Rock, Arkansas. Then in the 1920s, when he was only 18, he started to sing tenor, various different quartets. One of them was the overall quartet, sponsored by J.C. Penney. They all wore pressed blue overalls and white shirts and black bow ties. He also sang for a time with the famous Stamps-Baxter Quartet. He was the manager of the National Quartet. In 1937, he, along with his wife and some friends, organized the National Music Company in Fort Worth, Texas. He lived just outside Fort Worth. And from his base there, he taught music, he gave private voice lessons, he taught piano. But he also traveled the entire country conducting singing schools, and it's here he made his greatest contribution because he taught hundreds, thousands of people to be able to read shape notes and to sing. He taught who knows how many men to be song leaders. He conducted over 300 singing schools, at least one every year from the time he was 19 years old until he died. And he lived to be 98 years old. He published convention songbooks through these and was a great musical educator. In 1945, he and his wife bought out the other partners in the National Music Company and not long after that they moved to Jefferson in East Texas and Sterling settled on a farm there and he raised hogs, he raised cattle. Uh, he continued to be active in music. He tuned pianos. He continued to conduct those singing schools. And one of the other things he was doing during this time was writing hymns. In fact, he wrote over 400 by the time he passed. In 
In the 1960s, when a new theology came along, God is dead, some of you may remember that, this death of God movement. Sterling wrote a song, Sorry about your God, my God is living now. Another one of his hymns that's probably better known, and at least used to be in some of our books, Did You Repent? Fully Repent? Some of you may remember that one. At the age of 98, he passed quietly from this life. And if you're one of those who's ever looked at the authors in our songbooks, you've come across his name. It's listed as Robert S. Arnold. His most popular song was about heaven. And it describes it in a way just like John did in Revelation. Just like we have tonight. As a place of no tears. Brother Arnold was a a dear family friend. I remember him even when I was a small boy, and I remember him actually conducting a singing school, and he stayed with my parents the year before he died, 97, 98 years old by then, still as sharp as a tack and still had a beautiful singing voice. My father conducted his funeral, and at the graveside, no words were spoken. Everyone who was there simply sang this song, And then they were led in a prayer. And I can't imagine a more fitting tribute. I want us all to sing this song now, No Tears in Heaven. And as we do, focus on the words and allow this song to teach you the same message that we've been reading about from Revelation this evening. Some morning yonder 
will cease to ponder o'er things this life has brought to view. All will be clearer, save ones be dearer, in heaven where all will be made new. No tears, no tears, no tears of fair sorrow and pain will all have flown. No tears, no tears, no tears of fair, no tears in heaven will be known. I know that I want to go to heaven, and I know that you do too. As we said, it's a prepared place for prepared people. If you're here tonight and you're not prepared, then I urge you to make whatever changes you need to make to be right with God so that you'll have that eternal home that the Lord's left prepared for his people. It's his invitation while we stand and while we sing.